Hi, welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today is from Scotland. Welcome, John. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Nick. Yeah, John Sugden here um, from Campbell's of Bewley, uh, little Highland tailors and outfitters in the remote outpost of Invernessia. Um, and uh, yeah, that's me. And we've been, I took over this business five years ago. Um, and we've been gradually sort of trying to build the company's awareness um, and enjoying it while we go along. Now, it's quite strange because I was visiting Inverness, was it three, four years ago? And we were staying in a little hotel outside of Inverness, a little hunting lodge type hotel, which had excellent food. And that's where my wife found your leaflet, Campbell's and Bewley. And she picked it up and said, hey, this is something you'd like. Which meant, of course, that I had to do my research and I dropped by your shop, which must have been not that long after you took over, I think. Um, and it was a delight to visit both seeing the shop and talking to you. How on earth did you, as a young man, come to take over Campbell's, which I believe has been around for about 160 years now? Absolutely, yeah. Um, It's quite easy, I suppose. Um, So Campbell's has been around a long time. It was established in 1858. Um, I have always been in clothing my career. I've always wanted to be in clothing. Um, my father was in it, My both sets of grandparents were in it, so our family origins are from Yorkshire. Um, Dad's uh, father was, ran, um, it was managing director of a weaving mill. Mum's family business, uh, they were, um, they owned a spinning mill. Um, Dad then went to work for Mum's family business um, and ran it for them, and then they sold it in 87. And dad then um, took his, um, took what he got from that sale and invested it up in Elgin. Um, And uh, I did, he worked, I think he worked for 25 years, um, the mill there. And then I I did a traineeship there for 10 years. Well, I did a traineeship for two and then worked there for eight, which is fascinating. And I really learned the business from start to finish. So, you know, I went to work for, particularly for a year in a boiler suit and safety shoes and worked in the production. So I really understood um, how cloth is made because really that's the beginning of a lot of processes. Um, You know, seeing the yarn spun because, you know, spun yarn will go into knitwear or weaving um, or um, tailored goods. So seeing the whole process. Um, And then I was moved on to the sales side and one of the uh, first customers you tended to be given uh, were the were the sort of domestic market. So in terms of going overseas, that would be Ireland, um, and then here in Scotland and England. So you were given sort of rural accounts, and Campbell's was one of them. Um, and so my father said one Christmas, I was working for Macintosh, and I said, well, I'm not sure I'll do too much longer here. Um, I think um, I found it slightly difficult working for the Japanese just due to a difference in culture. Um, they, were, they were great, but it was just very different internally. And I just said one Christmas, I'd like to do something myself um, and I'd like it to be menswear. That's my real passion. Um, and, and we need to uh, make sure craft plays an important part because I think that's the future. Um, and he just came down two hours later, having had a bath and a whiskey 
And he just sort of said, what about Campbell's of Bewley? Um, now, of course, this is 10 years since after it was one of my accounts. So I'd kind of you know forgotten about them. And I said, gosh, Dad, it was quite, quite a tired business back then. What's it going to be like today? And he said, no, 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 that's exactly what you want. You want, if you're going to develop a business, you want to be able to put your stamp on it. So, you, you know, you want it to be in need of a bit of careful and, well, careful, tasteful um, repair almost. And so I said, okay, well, if you think that's a good idea, go for it. Um, if you want to negotiate and we can remortgage our flat in London, we hadn't done badly on the property market in London, as many people did, um, with the property boom. So that's what we did. And I don't know, two years later, um, my father and father-in-law called me up and said, how long is your notice at Macintosh? And I said, six months. And he said, well, you better hand it in because um, we're starting March the 1st, 2015. And uh, that was that. So the next day I handed my notice in. It was all very quick and I didn't really think about it too much, but I just knew I trusted my father. I always trusted his instincts. And I thought, yeah, you know, this is a company that could work, mainly due to I just knew it had a really rich uh, and not contrived history. You know, it was there for everyone to see. Gosh, did you have any sort of idea what you were getting into? No, not at all. And in the first year, (laughs) it was incredibly tough. Oh, God, it was tough. Um, It was a shambles and it was really difficult. And I actually had a consulting job to supplement our income because Nick and I didn't take anything out for three years. We couldn't. Um, so I had a consultancy job with um, bags of air uh, for a week every month. And that was quite fun. Um, but and it was lovely people there and a great business, but yeah, it, it helped me get Campbell's going and, you know, not taking too much out and allowing anything that we generated to go back into the business and build it for the future. Because what you took over was basically a 150-year-old business which hadn't seen much investment in recent times, I suspect. Yeah, exactly that. It was definitely creaking at the seams, they might say. Um, And I don't know, I I think probably, um, you know, the, the... the problem was the um, it was a very famous business. It was very well known, so it had all the history and heritage that anybody would want. Uh, the wonderful family who were very good friends with um, there were three siblings: Campbells, James Campbell, Miriam, and Katrina. Katrina was the eldest, um, and you know they they were ready for retirement. They never married, so they didn't have anybody to hand on to. And perhaps I'm sure if I still held the reins here at Campbell's when I was 80 I think yeah it might um it certainly might lose its touch and not become so up to date it's still a wonderful charming shop but it just might you know need that modern tweak that a younger couple would bring in and that's what we did on the retail side and we've done it since you came you know there are all sorts of changes people come in and they say oh wonderful it hasn't changed and that's the that's a huge compliment to us because it has changed a lot but you don't necessarily notice. And I think that's a great compliment, um, to particularly my wife, who's really good at doing um, that sort of thing on the decor. And on the tailoring, I think the problem there was that, you know, again, sometimes when you've you've had someone at the helm, and Tom, you met him, Tom was great. But yeah. equally, you know, he, he hadn't perhaps, because we're in an outpost, you know, all the Savile Row tailors will talk about new techniques and new ways to cut and, 
this, that, and the other, and you know the different styling, the styling that's on trend, etc. We 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 were perhaps a bit cut off, um, and so it was pretty difficult instilling in a tailor who'd been doing it his way for the last forty years a little bit of change. Now there was nothing wrong with what he was doing. I just think it perhaps had become a bit dated. Maybe the cut needed changing, and this, that, and the other. And while he was you know, it's very difficult to put that delicately because you're not saying, you know, there's something wrong with someone's skills. You're just saying, I just need you to do it a bit differently because that's what's relevant today. And that was very difficult to change. And yeah, I think there was so much within um, that needed, just needed a little delicate um, tweak and um, you were on the road to a a safe and, and, and quick recovery. Right. Were there a lot of new techniques that have been implemented since you uh, made changes? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the traditional one, um, and you know, some people might not like this, but I, I felt that um, it was relevant. Um, if you look at British tailoring versus Italian tailoring, British tailoring has a lot of structure in it. Um, you know, in 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 Italy, very simplistically, again. You have Milanese tailoring, Florentine, and then Naples, and the sort of structure gets less the further south you get to lighten the jacket. That's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but it, it's sort of true. And British tailoring has always traditionally had more structure. And uh, that's okay if you're, say, making a nice fine worsted from Huddersfield, but we're generally making sporting wear and Highland wear. So we're generally wearing, uh, tailoring very, um, sturdy, heavy cloths. So the structure and the weight and bulk, let's say, is already in the cloth. So I wanted to try and I always felt that looking at people trying on our jackets and suits, they were just too bulky on the individual. And I said, well, you know, we've got to reduce the structure, you know, do it slightly more down the Italian route. And, you know, that wasn't, I don't think our tailor necessarily agreed with us because that's not the way he always did it. Um, it's the way I wanted to do it. Um, and it's the way that I felt by doing so, we'd probably get more traction and get more clients. Um, and so that was the main change that I instilled in tailoring as well as investing in new equipment. Um, and probably, you know, a little change of staff. I think we needed some, some new blood, some young seamstresses and things like that. And we've got that and it's been great. And, you know, five years later, I think, we could Nick and I could both say that they were, although tough decisions, they were the right decisions, and they've, you know, stood the company in good stead for the future. Because mm. my thought when you're saying that you were sort of changing the cut and look of uh, of the traditional clothes, you you sort of made a conscious decision there to make a break with tradition. And I think if there's anything Campbell's of Bewley probably are related to, it is tradition. So did your customers sort of pick up on the sort of fashionable modernizing of the garments or did they still want what they traditionally have had for 150 years? I, I, I don't think you'd really notice the sort of changes structure you know particularly on the shoulders is really where I'm focusing on I don't think you would really notice it too much um you know the world's getting warmer so people want you know lighter jackets whereas we specialize really in heavy tweeds um 
and bear in mind, you know, we're also we're, we're very much Highland wear and sporting wear focused. Um, so no, people didn't notice, and I don't feel we're you know pulling away from the traditional way of doing things. We haven't necessarily changed the changed the techniques. We've tweaked the ch- techniques to be slightly more relevant today, and. Um, you know, the cut is up to the individual. Of course, we can make it slimmer, but equally, you know, for, say, a stalking jacket, you do need room for movement. Um, so they haven't changed too much. Um, no, I, so I don't I don't feel our customers have noticed. And if anything, um, the way the business has grown would suggest that um, customers like what we do. Good. Uh, who would you say is the mainstay of your customer base? Well, yeah, I think um, I think certainly tailoring-wise, because you've got to bear in mind that actually retail is probably the biggest side of our business now, ready to wear. And not not by a lot, but um, it used to sort of be 50-50, and it's now probably 60-40. But on the tailoring and craftsmanship side, uh, as, as I said before, we, we would be sporting wear and um, Highland wear would be our niche, um, which is quite a nice niche to have, actually. Um, on Savile Row, for example, you know, who would specialise in sporting well? Probably only Huntsman, and they're a completely different price point to us. Um, so we quite have a nice niche there, as we do in Highland wear. And then on, if you take those two brackets, I, w- I would suspect that sporting wear would probably be 70, 60-70% of our tailoring. And of, of that, say, 70%, or let's just say 60, it probably would be, 50% estates, so the gamekeepers and stalkers who work on the estates and manage the land, and then um, the remaining 50%, so individuals, would be those people who enjoy their sport on the hills. Um, it's not for everyone, um, and uh, but it's what, it's what keeps our little business going. So, yeah, we enjoy working with a lot of them. You mentioned the estates and making outfits for, for the people who work there. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so that's probably historically the backbone of the business. Um, the gamekeepers, the stalkers who manage the land, um, in a lot of cases in Scotland, have a very age-old and historic tweed, which they wear as their uniform. Um, and traditionally, there's been a few uh, tailors up in the north of Scotland who would look after those estates and that would sort of be you know a good you know order flow through the business each year to give you the stability so that's you know the way we see it um, and it's and it's great and you work with them and so we tend to tailor the suits for big estates small estates every well one to three years some are every year if they really wear them in most are every other year and um, some are every three to four years. But, um, yeah, and, and their tweed that they would wear um, would generally, the colours in the tweed would reflect the, um, the colours on the hill that they manage because the tweed is essentially a camouflage for them. Um, and so they should hopefully blend into the land. And that would mean that various estates have different tweeds. Absolutely. Um, you know, if you if you look at the map up here, 
Um, they all have different tweeds and they're wonderful. They're age old tweeds, um, be it, I don't know, there's some wonderful names. Uh, what can I think of? Corrie Bruff, um, Clune, uh, Corder, um, Farr, Kander Craig, that's owned by Billy Connolly, um, uh, Glenn Bucket, um, Milden, Invercald, Invermark, Balmoral, um, there's some wonderful names. It's, it's, it's really wonderful to go through them. And we do deal with a lot of them. Um, and it's a great pleasure um, to do it. You mentioned Balmoral. Now, I think that might be related to the fact that you have a royal warrant now. Yes, we do indeed. Um, so there's various, various criteria um, you sort of have to pass to be able to apply for it. And then the warrant holders, if you apply, put you forward to the... Um, the, the warrant holder and you're either approved or denied. So we were very lucky in 2017 to tick all the right boxes and um, we were granted the Queen's Royal Warrant. And again, it was part of why we thought this business had real potential because I think I think the Royal Warrant is very relevant today. I think it's a huge stamp of approval um, for any company that has it, particularly, and I think even more so in clothing, and even more so abroad, you know, the Japanese and the Americans really, you know, if they see that, if you look at the brands, bit Crockett and Jones, Trickers and Shoes, or various um, other tailors oh, that have it, yeah, I mean, or Ettinger in, in leather goods, you know, they're all quite prominent and well thought after brands, particularly with a, with a craftsmanship element to them. Um, and so when we got the Queens, we were very happy about it. But we also knew the wonderful history that Campbell's already had with warrants um and they had the the queen mothers um and of course that you could you have to stop using the warrant five years after the monarch's death so that would be in the mid noughties that they stopped using um the queen mothers i think my history is right there and then previous to that we had the duke of windsor previously um prince wales um so we had a sort of history there and i, I don't know i think i well i believe the royal family absolutely love Scotland. They love coming here. It's probably because they're able to get away and have peace and quiet in the, in the mountains away from the media. Um, and um, they probably know of Campbell. So we, we, we've been working with them for a long time. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to be able to look after um, the Queen's household. And we also do uh, make a few things for various individuals in the household as well. So you actually have uh, notes regarding the sizing of certain members of the royal household? We do, we do. And it's quite funny because um, Tom always put them in code. Um, so so if you read them, you wouldn't understand the numbers. They wouldn't make sense. But the tailor and myself understand them. Um, it's pretty simple once you know what the code is. But um, yeah, they're all in code so nobody could copy them. So that's rather a nice little story of how they're hidden and there was one one time we were asked to um to make another thing for for some someone and see well you've got his measures so um i probably let slip who it might be there but anyway um uh, and so we went to the measures and we couldn't find um tom had since retired and we couldn't find we couldn't remember the code and how you worked it out so there's great panic and um, we had to go and see tom and uh, he had to write down the old um, the formula 
um, that he used. So we worked it out in the end. But yeah, now they're all sort of stored on the computer um, under a certain name. And uh, yeah, we're, we're quite, we sort of do things in quite an old fashioned way. It seems really silly, but um, it's just the way we do it. And we've carried on the traditions. It's what the Campbells did before. It made us laugh and we rather enjoy it. So we carried on doing it. Right. A bit of Bletchley Park going on there. Exactly. Yeah. Rather fun and rather amusing. Hmm. So, I mean, do you do supply a lot of things to the Royal Royals or is the is it mainly a stamp of approval that can be beneficial otherwise? No, we do. We, I mean, they're probably one of our biggest um, – I mean, it, Balmoral is quite a uh, large landmass, so they have a number of um, gamekeepers managing the land. Um, and so we would generally see them once every two years. Um, so, that, you know, that's quite a number of – plus fours and waistcoats and jackets and deer stalker hats to um, to make. Um, so, no, they're a good client. And then um, there's an individual we work with um, on Highland wear. Um, and um, so that's that's relatively regularly. You might get a project every year or something to work on. Um, and uh, that's it's, it's really great for the team because they thoroughly enjoy working on orders projects whatever you wish to call it um for you know particular individuals and you know other than members of the royal family there are also all sorts of interesting names and of people that um you know order things from us and the girl you know it just adds a brightens up someone's day it's rather nice that you're making somewhere something for a certain someone and you know they i think they probably enjoy it a little more yeah I do have to admit that when I visited your shop and the tailoring room, I did feel the tweed of a jacket that was going to a certain female member of the royal family, uh, just to oh. avoid a big outcries. Now I won't say which name it was, but um, I know, yeah. whenever I see her, I think you've got uh, that tweed. Yes, mm. yeah. no, we we love it, and um, it doesn't have to be them. It has to be. It can be all sorts of other people, and I think yeah, we 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 definitely have a really interesting and niche clientele um and the other thing is when they come to Campbell's they're completely normal people and it's so refreshing you know I think when you walk down a high street in London you just get pestered by the paparazzi it must be so irritating but you come up here and they're just another member of the public and nobody really notices and they suddenly walk in the shop and they can just have a peruse around and you know, I, I've missed a couple of people before, and, and they were like, "We had a we had a supermodel in the other day, and they were buying knitwear and things, and I missed it completely." And all the girls are sort of going, "Oh, didn't you notice who that was?" And I said, "No, not at all." And, and yeah, so I think that's rather refreshing. And I, I always say, girls, you know, it's important if and when um, any you know publicly known people come in the shop, don't make a fuss of them. I think. They'll probably absolutely love the fact that you just say, hello, good morning, you know, let us know if you'd like any help. Men's is through there, ladies is through there, um, and we'll leave you to have a peruse, and we're here to help if you need us. Um, but otherwise, have a rummage. And I'm sure they love that. They don't want someone sort of hanging over them. So we do. I, I really do try and make sure that that's the, the approach that the staff have. I think the fact that you fail to recognise the female supermodels also bodes well for the longevity of your marriage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I 
<laughs> probably, probably so. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably not have recognised her either. So my eyes are for my little cocker spaniels, probably. That's good. Yeah. Um, the shop now. I, I believe you also get a lot of buses coming by, coaches. Yes, um, Invergordon's a big port. Um, and well, I mean, this year obviously it didn't happen, but there were about a hundred cruise ships booked in, and through the summer, particularly July and August, they bring in you know daily tour buses. Now, I would say it's not always our market, um, and I mean we're not a cheap shop. I, I, I'm sort of, and we're also quite sporting orientated. So if that's not your thing, um, then you might not like our store, although we do have wonderful, beautiful, um, beautifully made knitwear, which really isn't necessarily geared towards the sporting industry and lots of colour. It's very Scottish. It's Scottish made. Um, but equally, it's, it's, it's not cheap. Um, and then that's important to us in that because we're making beautiful um, product. Um, so the tour bus business isn't always huge for us. Um What's probably really helped the retail thrive uh, um, would be the North Coast 500, um, which is a sort of a a driven route around the tip of Scotland and back. So you you generally go up the West Coast all around the top and back down the east. I mean, you can do it the other way as well. And Bewley is the sort of start and finish. Um, And that has brought all sorts of people from all over the world with their wonderful old-fashioned or modern sports cars to do it. And we've really thrived a lot off that. And one of the um, things that I in particular wanted to do, and Nick agreed and so did my father, was that we wanted to build a business initially that was sustainable on an old-fashioned business model in that the retail and the tailoring together without online, made for a small, profitable, sustainable business. And we did that. And I spoke to a really good friend um, called Marcus, and he has a really great retail business in Stockholm. And he said to me, you know, everybody, John, will tell you online, online, online. And he said, and they're right, but it's not as easy as you think. It's not just quick click of a button and, you know, something's sold. There's a lot of stuff behind the scenes which is time consuming and laborious and he just said just just be careful before you go heavy on online so we didn't you know for the first year three years really touch it sure we had a website and sure some products were up but people kept saying oh your website's dreadful and we probably haven't touched it but as we said at the beginning of this conversation you know the first year we were absolutely we were nearly drowning in work and we were at our desk till sort of midnight and everything trying to get the business working and trying to follow up and do this, that, and the other. So online, we wanted to just just not go at it too hard too quickly. Um, and then in the last two years, we have pushed it. And it's been our saving grace, really, in lockdown, um, and that it's, you know, online has gone completely nuts. Um, and that has really helped the business through these, you know, difficult last few months. Um, so yeah, retail's a, a strong side to the business, and I think I think the retail store itself. I mean, I do really love it. You could say going back to you know the people who come in, it's a store that's you know they always say about Marmite, you either love it or you hate it. You know, I think some people might 
say that about the shop. There's a lot of taxidermy, um, but that's our look. Um, and that's what we're about. And, you know, you don't have to appeal to everyone. You can appeal to a niche these days and, and be a successful business. And I think that's what we're doing. And I love the shop and I think it's really unique. And, you know, the fixtures and fittings are all original. We've just sort of done a few sympathetic um, little tweaks around the edges. And I think the store's looking great. I mean, it's changed a bit since you came in, but um, I think only for the good. It's looking really great. I think something that's often overlooked is that you don't need to sort of win the world. You don't need infinite amount of customers. You really just need enough. Would you say that's true? I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And one of my one of my aims with Dad is I sort of went on about exclusivity, and I said, you know, there's been many British brands, many global brands who you know they start off as a store or two and then they grow and grow and grow and grow and then they have five stores and then 10 and then 20 and to me as someone who likes to buy sort of exclusive clothing that not everybody's wearing I sort of lose interest in those brands when they just get a bit big and there's one classic very big example um which is huge in menswear now and stores everywhere, um, you know, all across globally, um, a massive business. Um, and I just wouldn't buy clothes from them anymore because they're just in every city you can think of. And I, I set out with Campbell to say, I don't mind if we're not that kind of business. I don't want to have that kind of business. I want business that's perhaps best in its field, but I'm happy for the field to be a niche field. Um, and I want to do it what we do really well. And for the people who enjoy our look to really enjoy what we do. And, you know, I think our knitwear, I mean, knitwear is a huge part of our business. Probably actually knitwear sales now would outweigh our, t- our annual tailoring sales. And, you know, we're based in Scotland. Scotland's known for knitwear. And I think, you know, we have a really wide offering on it and it's something I really enjoy. Um, and it's all made in Scotland. Um, it's all where we can and pretty much all made from privately owned family run businesses like us. So synergy is important to us. We really like to make sure that, you know, that we have a, we have a, a bond with the manufacturer and we work closely with them. You know, I was on wholesale for the majority of my career to date. And then obviously this is my first foray into retail. And I used to get really upset um, with the way brands treated their manufacturers. Um, and, you know, the brands were just all about margin, 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 margin. And they were screwing the manufacturers into the ground. And then, you know, they would bemoan the fact that there weren't many manufacturers left. And I sort of would point out to some of them and say, well, there aren't because you're not allowed allowing them to make enough profit to be able to reinvest to be able to make themselves better companies. And I have a I'm you know a man of great principles and I just you know always said to dad, dad, you know even if our volume increases with this or this or this, you know we are making a fair margin on that product. I'm not you know that's the price from them. That's the price. Let them you know everyone has to make a uh, you know a percentage and it has to be fair. And so we work really closely with our suppliers. And I think in the main, you know, if, if you called all of them, they'd say, yep, we have a great relationship. And, you know, throughout lockdown, 
and in particular, two of our suppliers, you know, one of them said, if you pay before, you know, it was in June, if you pay by Christmas, that's fine. Well, we've paid him within 60 days on all invoices. And we're quite proud to be able to do that. And it's important to me that we work with people um, who we enjoy working with, but also that the brand remains true to its origins and doesn't become and fall into that, I think, bracket where they become too big and their original customer who really got them going and loved what they did leaves because they just feel, oh, they've got too big and they've lost their way. It is quite amazing that uh, knitwear is still made in Scotland and in such volumes and at such a reasonable price point, given how pretty much most other things are busy sort of relocating. I agree. Um, Look, I think I was speaking to someone and they said to me um, they felt that in the last six months, menswear or retail has changed a decade so it's, it's changed a decade, a decade's worth of change has happened in the last six months. Um, and I feel it has. Um, so I think that's something to be very careful and react to. Is it mainly uh, Johnston's of Elgin who make knitwear in Scotland now? Or are there lots of smaller places as well? No, we don't buy anything from Johnston's. Um, there are lots of others. Um, and I think it's important to support those smaller niche, uh, you know, family run businesses. You know, I, I want the family to be running capable people and running, running the business and have a real interest. Um, not just sort of token chairman or something like that. I really want them to be hands on. That's really important to us. Um, so yeah, there's a really good nucleus left. And with the provenance being so important, I think actually the last five years and going forward is, it's going to be a good time for them and linking on to you know that the fact that it's changed so much in a in a decade a sort of decade in the last six months i do feel that with people working from home and you know sustainability being a key word um people are going to definitely spend the old the old saying they're going to spend more and buy less and if you're doing that you want to buy really beautiful products that that you know has been well made, and so that's where provenance comes into it. They care again about where it's made. Um, you know, they don't just want to buy a lambswool sweater in navy from Primark or wherever. You know, they want to buy it from someone, and they're going to wear it for the next five to ten years. They're not just going to you know buy it and you know throw it away next year. And I think throwaway fashion is. You know, due to sustainability, due to global warming, you know, due to this wave of youth coming through with, thankfully, principles, I, I do think, you know, all that sort of fast fashion is going to really struggle. And, you know, what we want to focus on is, you know, things like sustainability, as I said, provenance, and we want to remain small, we want to be original, um, unique, uh, and I always say to our buyer, because I, th- I think it's probably slightly to do with my taste, but just, you know, keep it quirky. We are a quirky little business. Um, and just, you know, I think if you keep it quirky, you'll remain a little bit of a niche business. And I'm I'm fine with that. That's what I enjoy. 
You mentioned the sustainability and the death of fast fashion, or rather the sort of hope that it will die. Now, there, there is a lot of talk about that these days, and, um, and many people are saying they're going to change their shopping habits and just buy better stuff and use it up properly. And do you think this is just a sort of fashionable idea right now, or do you think people actually will manage to do it? Um, I definitely think it's fashionable, but I think it's a bit of both. You know, if you look at the way the young of today really do seem to have principles and they're going on about global warming and things like that. Yeah, I I do think, and this, remember, this is the start of the movement, Nick. So I I don't feel it's going to happen overnight and I think it will take decades. But yeah, I do believe, you know, if you're starting now on that curve, you will, you'll be going through it at the right time. And yes, I, I do think it's a significant sea change and um i do think it will happen yeah i I do think people are gonna care more i don't i don't think it's just virtue signaling no um and again i'm 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 really i'm really happy about that um i I just think that yeah fast fashion perhaps i mean look i'm sure it'll still be around but um it's just um i think you know the impact that it does have on the world people will really start to realize and yeah there'll still be fast fashion companies um but i think there's a lot of opportunities for much smaller, unique businesses who care about the factories and people that they have their products made by. Yeah, I, I hope so too. Uh, I just tend to take a sort of dim, bleak view on these things. And I sort of notice how the fast fashion companies, now the big ones, are already sort of changing their direction, changing their marketing their greenwashing campaigns and they're sort of uh, yeah obviously they're trying to keep up volume because that's what they make their living off and to keep up the volume they have to make it so that their customers can still feel good about buying all, all the stuff yeah i agree um and that you know that was one of the reasons when we bought the business i i remember it used to because the heritage sort of you know, boom was sort of starting there and so many people were sort of faking it. Um, and I, I wanted a business where the history and heritage wasn't contrived. Um, you know, I, I, it was really important to me. And, and at Campbell's, we have that. So if we have that history and heritage, history and heritage embedded in our sort of, um, in our business, I don't want to uh, sort of tarnish um, that reputation by buying in, you know, cheap product. And, you know, the, yes, Scottish knitwear is quite expensive, um, but, you know, it's it's made locally and it's nice to be able to support those businesses. And they're, they're, they're often small. They're often quite um, difficult and even quirky to work with. And you have to have some patience sometimes. But, you know, I love I love sending an order to the Shetlands and saying, you know, to Little Mills up there and saying, okay, you know, can we have another twenty Farrell slipovers and things? I think it, I think it's great to be able to work with and support family businesses. And yeah, I, I do feel there is enough of a moment, enough momentum, and enough people with that viewpoint to be able to make our little business viable. And I I only feel it will grow. Um, I, I do feel that um, it, it's only going to grow further in the next, you know, 10, 20 years. Yeah. I, I'm surprised you say that knitwear is expensive, even when made in Scotland, because I look at the prices you charge for knitwear and I'm thinking, that's a remarkable bargain. 
I mean, once you start walking back what, what it must have cost, what's involved in making it, uh, at least two parties need to make some sort of profit here. I mean, could you have made it cheaper anywhere else? Definitely. Um, oh, yeah, you can make it much cheaper. I mean, you've got to remember knitwear is made on machines uh, in the main, so, you know, the machines can make it relatively quickly. Um, but I think the, the, the difference, you know, I remember going back to me saying I worked wholesale and worked with brands and I saw these astronomical margins. I'm all about a fair margin and we know we don't have any rent up here. Um, you know, we don't have a rent to pay. We own the building, whereas all these retailers, and I feel for them, um, on the high streets in London, and they'll be having a very tough time with these astronomical rents. You know, they've got to factor that in to their retail price. Um, so we don't. So, you know, charge a fair margin, allow a fair margin to your supplier. Um, I remember I remember one famous brand, and they were pushing us, pushing us, pushing on, on price, on scarves. And, and, and you were thinking, your margin is times 10. And I think the sort of the buyer looked at me as I was being impertinent saying that. I said, well, uh, and I didn't say it in a difficult way. I said, golly, well, we're sort of, we're, we're being pushed down to something like seven to 8% and you're making times 10. Yeah, but we have to, you know, all the marketing, you know, it's the marketing budget. And I just thought, well, what about our marketing budget? Um, and, you know, the brand, big brand's attitude to, in their contracts, try and govern how much the manufacturer could build their own brand. I mean, it, it, it all really didn't add up for me and I, and I didn't like it. And I didn't think that was a particularly good way of, a, you know, approaching your job. I know big, big businesses do that, you know, big, big drinks brands buy up distilleries and mothball them so they manage their competition. But um, I didn't like it in clothing and I just wanted to do it in a way that I thought was fair. And I didn't think you know, timesing by 10 was a particularly fair way of um, retailing a product. We, we work on fair margins and we're doing okay on it. And yes, I do think sometimes we are a little bit cheap. Um, uh, but equally, you know, we will, um, we feel we're, we're charging a fair price and we're happy with it at the moment. Mm. I think times 10 is the worst markup I've ever come across. There'll be a few of them, net, uh, big brands and all the people who might listen to this will have know will know them, but I'm I'm not about to say. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of them. Every you know major high street, just the big names, the biggest even they are making astronomical um, astronomical margins. And because we as consumers, particularly in the Far East, where you know there's huge um, growth, we are obsessed by brands. Um, and, you know, people go on about oh, the Campbell's brand. It, it, it would be far too contrived of me to use that word again to say, you know, Campbell's is a brand. We're not. We're just a little shop with a nice name um, and a little bit of history and heritage. And that's the way I sort of want to be. I don't want to go too too branded. Um, I just feel, I don't think it's naff, but, you know, we're, look, we're just a nice family-run, honest company who makes nice things. So the stalkers won't be stalking the hills with a big Campbell's logo on their back next season. Absolutely not. But there might be a nice Land Rover with the, with Campbell's written all over the side. That's about as far as I might go. <laughs> um, the point you're making about the massive markups there, uh, I often talk about how I prefer to go to smaller brands where I 
there's less marketing, there's less um, markup, uh, chains of markup, if that's what you'd say. Um, so really the person making the stuff is making a better profit, less pressure on prices. And as a person buying something, as a consumer, you're actually getting better value for money. Definitely. I think I think you absolutely are. Um, I mean, I remember, I remember someone in, in the restaurant business and they said, you know, well, it's great when someone orders the soup because it might be the cheapest thing on the starter menu, but it's the one we make the most margin on. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think you do get a better, I mean, the, the price might sometimes be more um, from a small independent retailer, but as you say, you are definitely getting a better product because their margin will be more sensible, more honest. Um, there are all sorts of little unique retailers and don't forget if you look at the, the it must be working because if you look at the last decade independent small independent boutiques be it menswear or ladies but particularly menswear and that's my background there's a hell of a lot more than there used to be so we must be doing something right and there must be a demand for it because if there's more and more um then they must be selling products and, and thriving I think part of the heritage authentic um, trend has been that more men are actually buying more distinctive and smaller brand garments. Yep. Authenticity is a, is a huge thing. Um, and I think even in the, even since we've been up here um, five years, more and more product and manufacturing is coming back to the UK. Um, and I think, that that shows the sort of the shift um, that there's been, um, you know, the movement, the wind has, the wind has changed um, and, and we can get better products made in the UK because there's a demand for it. I think w- there is a, I think, I think the, the British textile industry is polarised, you know, it's not going to get any smaller. In fact, I can only see it growing. And, you know, many of the little mills, be it cloth, be it, um, knitwear, be it tailoring, they're all doing really well. They're incredibly busy. So, yeah. Are they finding the staff? I mean, are, are you finding tailors in Scotland, given that the garment industry has been in a slump for many years and maybe young people haven't been seeking opportunities within it? Yeah, that's really difficult. Um, and um, I work as uh, co-chair at um, the Dumfries House Textile School um, and uh, what we're trying to do there is stimulate interest in uh, the textile industry from the grassroots up and try and you know build a, a nucleus of people going into the industry again because there's an age gap um, and we need to fix that so it is incredibly difficult to find good trained young people to go into the industry and where there's a a typical textile manufacturing area and a nucleus of companies so be it you, the yorkshire mills you know bradford and huddersfield um and and there's also tailoring down there as well and spinning and the borders of scotland wonderful weaving and spinning mills they're okay they can find people um the knitwear manufacturers in the borders as well that's particularly what they're known for. But up here, we we are slightly out on a limb, um, a bit of a remote outpost, as I said, um, at the uh, 
at the beginning of the conversation, a hidden gem. And it's very difficult to find uh, new people to join our tailoring team, um, which does limit the potential growth, perhaps, of that side of the business. But I'm quite happy, again, to have it as a very sort of small and niche um, unit. I, I don't want to perhaps grow too big because I think that would cause a, a lot of pressure on finding the skills um, to, to make the product. Mm. It's, a, it's a problem. I hear that uh, from others as well, that it's very easy to find a social media specialist today, but find someone who can operate a sewing machine, a lot trickier. Yeah, and you know the problem is, is that if the social media expert does their job, suddenly the demand um, increases exponentially and very quickly. Um, and uh, yeah, that could cause a problem for the person trying to find the the sewers and the knitters, etc., etc., etc. So yeah, you have to, you have to. Dare I say, I'm not a big one for the marketing terms, but you have to build it sort of organically and sustainably, um, so that you can make sure that you know, the growth is gradual. And with that gradual growth, you can find people and train them in a nice, slow way and not a sudden rush, because I think then your quality would um, hit the ground. And yeah, I mean, I, I do think there's a there's a big sea change coming the more we talk about it. And um, it's interesting, I had someone on the phone the other day, and they came into the shop and they knew my father and we were having a chat. And he followed up and he he wanted to he worked in london and he you know he clearly worked or knew people within private equity and he sort of said i'd love to have lunch with you when you're next in london and introduce you to some people um and i just sorry for speaking frankly but i, I just sometimes feel they just don't get it and this is my opinion and it comes back to what we've been talking about i just think there is a sea change and people want more exclusive unique brands and what they're sick of is seeing you know private equity get involved in lovely little companies like this exponential growth for 5 years and then the original customer hates what you've become okay you might well you know um make a little bit of money out of it but money doesn't bring you happiness and um enjoying your job is really important and i, I just i don't know i said this quite he, he's a lovely guy and i said this quite bluntly i just said i don't think there'd be any point in me meeting with them because i have no interest in that um and i think i'd be very happy to meet with them and tell them you know guys you need to rethink your your strategy because i, I think there's a big sea change coming in in fashion and, um, you know, sustainability is becoming a big thing. And I don't think people want brands that, you know, you build up, you know, really quickly into big money-making machines. I think people want lots of little different stores um, where they can buy unique and original product um, and they like the provenance of it. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an exciting time to have a business like ours. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure we will grow, but only to a sort of manageable size. It's very difficult to grow a business in the Highlands, I think, because as we come back to, um, particularly on the tailoring, it's difficult to find um, really good, passionate people. Right. And uh, people also want good things made by good people. Uh, the sort of um, venture capital funded um, expansion you were describing there, a certain British footwear brand comes to comes to mind. <laughs> 
where they have been invested heavily in, their range has expanded massively, shops uh, popping up, uh, and their quality has also gone down the toilet. So, and it's become. We- I think I know who you mean, and it's become quite a Euro look. And actually, what's interesting if we're talking about the same company is that their sister brand now represents everything that the original parent brand used to represent. And all those original customers moved on to the sister brand, which is run by the original family. And it's quite interesting. And there's a great example you've just brought up. I think we might be talking about two different ones now, because I was thinking Dr. Martens, but you might have been talking about church. Oh, I couldn't possibly say, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's not the same because, uh, I mean, the, the Doc Martens customers are fleeing to Solivere, who are made by MPS in the same village as the original Doc Martens factory. So there's literally 250 yards from each other, and the quality is wildly different. But then I guess, um, uh, yeah, the Cheney brothers, no, the Church brothers sold Church and moved to Cheney, didn't they? Spot on, yeah. And uh, so the same's there, yeah. It's a shame because, I mean, while they're trying to pump up the value or the resale value of the company, they are also tarnishing it for for the future. So it's a question then of finding someone who's willing to take it on who isn't aware of the fact that they've kind of screwed it up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I mean, in a way, um, the Church Brothers, I think, did it very cleverly and got good timing on it because – now, having got out, you know, and, and restarted and, and, and revamped Cheney, they're doing it in a really beautifully way, beautiful way, um, and they're keeping it quite crafty, which I think is very relevant for today's market. Hmm. Now, as a keen menswearist yourself, do you suck at your own teat and have everything made by your own tailors, or do you uh, go out shopping? Uh, no, I do go out shopping. Not um, not everything is made here, you know. Um, yeah, of course, I I don't think I'd be seen in anyone else's knitwear unless I really really liked it. Um, but equally, I I would buy my fine suits from someone else if I wanted a city suit. I probably wouldn't necessarily have it made by us, or I wouldn't. Um, but I'm I've always been really a a, a jacket and chinos man. And both of those, they're made. Um, got a wonderful pattern for my chinos. The girls always put a funky lining that I don't know about and make it really hysterical. And they have fun making them. And then tweed jackets and plus fours and things that I wear. It's all made in house. Shirts, I generally, yes, no, they wouldn't be made by us. I, I, and I'm a stickler for where things are made. You know, all my shirts are really from the same place. All my boxer shorts are from the same place. Um, so I do, yeah, I do like to, um, I, I'm, I'm, I think men in general are much more loyal shoppers than uh, women. Women shop around a lot more. That's, you know, what you get told. Um, and it, and it's true. It would seem true for us. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I have certain brands that I love to shop with. Very traditional then. Yeah, I think so. I think that they can be, um, or, or it could be, a look um i love drakes um i think they're absolutely great um and i've always shopped there for many years and i buy all my shirts there 
Um, a surprising one probably would be Brooks Brothers. Um, I mean, they're massive now, and perhaps you know some people would say, well, they're not the Brooks Brothers they used to be. Probably not, but of course, being a Brit traveling abroad to you know do business in in the states when I used to do a lot of export, it, it was very different for me being being a foreigner. So I love Brooks Brothers, and I always bought my boxer shorts there because I just love the fit, um, long and, and, and baggy. Um, so I've always bought those there. Um, and yeah, they're, they're just a couple of places I love to shop. Um, and yeah, suiting, there was a wonderful, um, tailor. Um, he works now at Fox brothers, um, called Brian Smith. And he used to come to, I think he was an ex cutter at Anderson Shepherd. And he used to come up to London and do fittings from his home in Somerset. And I always had my, and still do my sort of fine suits, made by him but you know I, I wouldn't order that many now because I, I generally um, I'm wearing a, 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 the smartest best a tweed jacket well it is important for you to sort of uh, promote your business at all times I imagine you're tooling around in your Land Rover with a Campbell's logo, logo on the side absolutely um, uh, yeah I love old cars um, and the Land Rover is uh, my favorite sort of um car that we have and again it's british uh um so i like having that and i think it's a good representation um of campbell's it sort of markets the brand well if you like um which sounds awful but it does it represents you know who campbell's are and um i love it yeah it's about i think it's 2010 um just had a bit of work done but it's uh, it's going well and uh yeah it's um that's another of the things i like to do it must also be the most country car around. Definitely. Um, it's not one for long journeys, that's for sure. Um, although it is very comfortable inside now, um, and I'm not particularly tall. I think for tall people, defenders aren't great because, um, you know, there isn't a lot of legroom for the driver. Um, but um, for people sh- who are short like me, they're incredibly comfortable. I love the driving position, and um, so I'm clearly happy to be short. Um, and I love driving around in it, but yeah, I, I'm getting to the point now cause you know, they're com- becoming such, um, classic and sought after vehicles that I don't really want to put too many miles on the clock. Um, and I bought it very low mileage anyway. So it's, it's, it's I think it's at 52,000 now, which isn't a lot, but you know, I don't particularly want to put, you know, 10 on it every year. Um, so I have to limit it to, uh, to certain short trips, but it's definitely the vehicle I like to potter about in locally. Um, I'll have to find something for longer journeys. Uh, it's odd that they've suddenly become so um, preservable because they must have made a massive amount of them and there must still be millions of them around. In the UK in particular, absolutely loads. I was actually looking at them last night because um, I was looking at the um, the new Defender, but I also then started looking at uh, original, well, the original Model 110s uh, you know, the last one sort of off the line in you know, 2015. And I mean, they're quite quite high price, but you can get some of them still in Immaculate Nick. Um, and yeah, they are they're lovely, lovely cars. The 110 is probably, mine's a 90, but the 110 is generally a bit less sort of, a bit more comfortable a ride. It's less sort of bouncy because of the longer wheelbase. Um, and it does give more of a sort of firm drive. Um, plus with two daughters now, 
Um, I can't use uh, or pick them up from school in the Defender, so maybe maybe we'll have to uh, think about another. I don't know. Yeah, I was I was just sitting thinking about how uh, it's not that long ago in Norway you could pick up um, ex-British Army Land Rovers pretty cheap because they'd been stockpiled in uh, in mountain caves here by the British Army just sort of in case of. Um, the need should arise for them. So there was, there was a period with lots of them around here. And they were the, the I think ones. you can still do that. Yeah, well, I think you can still do that in the UK. I know that my cousin's um, husband, Matt, he he's sort of a collector of these sort of vehicles. And he's got he's got a an ambulance defender, and it is quite unique. And he's also got an army one with a, with a turret. Even in the, it's a one ten with a turret in the back on the top, um, and it's got its bulletproof glass and things. But yeah, you can pick them up for very little, um, and that they're in. You know, mechanically, they're very sound. Yeah, I, I sense that we're sort of wearing off track here quite dramatically. Oh, sorry, uh, sorry. I, I see that we've been talking for an hour now. So I think um, I think we're coming to an end here, John. Okay. Is there anything you'd like to mention in closing? No, no. It's um, you know, it was um, it was nice of you to think about us. It was it was um, it was. I remember a, a unique moment when you came and you just sort of popped in and wanted to meet us back in 2016, and um, you wrote a lovely article. Um, so you know what goes around comes around, and um, it was very flattering, I guess, when you said, um, "Would I like to do this?" and uh, once I knew it wasn't um, a dreaded video call, um, <laughs> I, uh, I was very happy to do it. So, no, it's lovely chatting to you. And I'm glad that, you know, there's someone who wants to share um, the views and, and also shares the views of little businesses like us who you know, want to sort of do unique and original things and just make lovely, lovely products at an honest price. Very good. Okay, John. Uh, thanks a lot, and um, bye bye for now. Thanks a million, Nick. Good to talk. And that was all for this week's episode. A new episode next week. If you'd uh, like to investigate further, uh, my blog is at welldresseddad.com. Instagram at welldresseddad. Um, you've been listening to Gomology. Please uh, leave a rating and a review if you like. I'd really appreciate it. And if you'd like to get in touch, the email address is welldressedad at gmail.com. Thanks a lot and catch you next week. <laughs>